Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to what is a very special macro episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. I am very pleased to be joined on the other side of the mic by Sven Henrik. He's the founder of Northman Trader, an independent analysis firm providing macro views and technical analysis to its subscribers. He's very active on Twitter, and he is highly critical of the current economy and the Fed's role in it. Sven, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on, Frank. No, it's it's a pleasure. And we were talking about this before we turned the mics on. We've been increasing our footprint, so to speak, in macro coverage. We've been looking at gold, the U.S. dollar, and unsurprisingly, our audience really enjoys this coverage because so many of the parallels that are in the cryptocurrency world, Bitcoin world, are there in in the macro world as well, right? The fear of inflation, which is something that Bitcoiners look at as a sort of tailwind, if you will, for Bitcoin itself. And obviously, inflation fears are creeping up across the market. But I just want to start, I guess, like looking at the other side of the coin. Eric Belchunas, who's a really great reporter on ETFs at Bloomberg, he tweeted, and this is really funny, uh, media mentions of the phrase relentless rally have smashed records going back to the mid-90s. So there's there's this new sort of narrative that maybe us folks in the media are guilty of pushing that things are doing really, really well. And if you look at tech earnings, things are doing really, really well. Even if you look at cases, things are are improving. So with that backdrop and maybe a bit of the uh, you know euphoria perhaps going on, ignoring obviously like weakening dollar, et cetera, what are some of the stresses that that you think maybe people are overlooking, especially in this moment on the heels of uh, coming off of earnings, as an example? Well, you mentioned it. I mean, a relentless rallies in multiple asset classes. It's a vertical world, if you will, right? Uh, it's it's unfathomable in terms of history, the, the moves that we're seeing. One of the things I've been looking at for a while, I've been pointing them out, is uh, just if you look at market valuations vis-a-vis -vis the economy, 
uh, market cap to GDP. What we're seeing right now, we've never seen before, even not even during the, the year 2000 bubble. What basically is going on on in a short end is that central banks and governments globally have flooded the world with liquidity, the likes of we've never seen before. I mean, it makes 2009 basically look like child's play. The Fed itself has admitted that, you know, it's crossed multiple red lines. You know, they're buying corporate bonds, they're buying high yield debt. They're basically inserting themselves ever more into the capitalist system to the point where proper price discovery can no longer take place. My general concern has been is that they're on the path of zombifications of the economy in that companies that, you know, it's kind of called your creative destruction process, companies that were supposed to go bust in any other setting, cycle setting, are not allowed to go bust. Everything is being saved, if you will. And the fantasy is generally that, you know, there are no consequences attached with it. Now, I come back from a background where I've been critical of central banks for a long time. Obviously, the issue that we're all facing in a global macroeconomy are the three Ds, debt, deflation, and demographics. You know, the world has been on a longer term path where any growth is literally debt finance because the, the structural growth is simply not there. We have aging populations. We have declining population growth. In fact, this is completely outside of COVID. You know, last year in 2019, we had the lowest birth rates in the United States in decades. And this is a problem that Japan has been having for a long time, that Germany has been having. And then, of course, you add technology as the greatest deflationary force ever to it, you're running into a wall in terms of getting structural growth out of these economies. And so for the last couple of decades, the, the way this has been working from a macro perspective is central banks cutting rates to incentivize growth. What that has transformed into is what was supposed to be a role of being a lender of last resort when the economy gets into trouble, central banks have become the lender of the entire resort. They cannot let go. And yeah, go back to 2009 when the great financial crisis happened. The initial intent was that these interventions with zero rates and QE were to be temporary emergency measures for that reason. But what happened was in the last 10 years, if they, they morphed into permanent interventions, right? 2011, 2012, 2016, whenever the economy, the global economy gets into trouble, central banks intervene. And my concern is because of these interventions, you know, we obviously see it in markets, you know, corrections never last because central banks step in immediately, right? You never get corrections that last more than a few weeks, if that much. Even this crash here, right, in 2020, biggest crash we've had in our lifetimes. In four weeks, we dropped 35%, and then it was over, right? Because they, they again stepped in. But the amount of interventions that it requires to step in get ever, ever larger. In 2018, the Fed, for the first time, really tried to extract themselves from this, what I call a monetary monstrosity, right? Because the ECB in Europe could never raise rates to even zero. The QE interventions continued from the 2016 earnings recession into 2018. And so they tried for just a few months to reduce this balance sheet uh, that they had built up over the, the last 10 years. 
and it immediately ended because markets dropped hard. And so then last year they went back in and then they were forced to do what is called repo when they ran into trouble with the repo market. And that got us the asset price blow off top in, in February running right into that crisis that we had. So now, obviously, this crisis was unprecedented and with global shutdowns, and they've done even more. I mean, to numbers that they themselves could have probably never have imagined. I mean, the Fed's balance sheet is now at $7 trillion. Their treasury buyings is now over $4.2 trillion. So everything what we're seeing right now is leading to a path where all price discovery, as we see it, is very much distorted. This is not, this is not a picture you would see without all these incredible central bank interventions. And as a result of all that, just to sum this up, is markets are never really correcting, asset prices are never really correcting. And so we've created this machine that this independent call it Dan Nathan, who's doing a show with me called Straight Talk, you know, had called it a video game because the mm. market and the economy are ever more completely disjointed, disconnected, do not reflect reality. So as we now see this massive drop in, in GDP in, in 2020, you know, we're sitting at a market cap of 175 percent market cap to GDP. And just to put this in perspective, the only reference point we really have for this was the year 2000 during the tech bubble when it reached 150%. In the last 30, 40 years, you're looking at an average of 65% to 75%. Then we had these bubbles in 2000 and the housing bubble in 2007, where you see these spikes far above, but then you have a rebalancing process, right? You get the recessions sure. and it goes back to 60, 75%. But not here this time. We are still in a global recession. Yeah, we're going to have growth coming back, bouncing back in Q3. But year over year, you're clearly in a downturn globally. And we are at the highest valuations that we've ever seen. And of course, a lot of these valuations are concentrated in a very narrow band of stocks. And so the question that I've been raising for years, which I've never got an answer to. In fact, I did get an answer to it in 2018 is how will they ever extract themselves from this permanent intervention scheme that they've got going? And the answer is they can't and they won't. And so we're now looking at zero rates for the markets pricing in until 2025, uh, maybe a rate hike then. I mean, this is a very different world that we're faced with. And as a result of these interventions, we're looking at these price distortions and vertical moves in metals in you know, bond yields dropping to record lows. And of course, asset prices, uh, specifically tech stocks going completely vertical. And so we're witnessing the largest market cap expansion in human history. And so the question to everyone has to be, well, how will this all play out? And that's the undiscovered country, as I call it. Well, at the heart of what you're talking about is this idea that the markets are not connected to reality. And I think anyone who opens up the Financial Times in the morning or scrolls through financial Twitter is going to come to that conclusion. And it's been something that people have talked about for several decades, right? The market's not being connected to what the reality is. But it's interesting. Like one example that I find vexing is the run-up in gold, this safe haven asset, which is obviously tied to mounting fears of inflation among investors. They're worried about this aggressive monetary action being taken by central bankers across the world. And at the same time, you have, as you describe, this vertical run-up 
and tech stocks, which obviously are, you know, very risk on. So how do you account for that dichotomy when you see people who are clearly concerned about inflation on one side, but also, you know, it seems like they think the music isn't going to stop when you look at how people are investing in equities. Well, it's interesting, you know, speaking of gold as a, as a specific example, and this is where I think the big structural macro journey is really important to understand. Way before COVID, we were looking at gold, and I had published that on my Twitter feed a few times uh, throughout last year. Back in April, I think it was, yeah, May, April, May 2019, we had a chart on gold that was wildly bullish on it. Gold was trading at 1200, had an inverse pattern, was pointing to 1500. We got to 1520, I believe it was, then gold consolidated, put in a bull flag, and it was just one bullish pattern after another before COVID hit. So, you know, now that gold has exploded to this 2000 price target, obviously everybody now is bullish, right? This is what you get. You get these vertical moves and sentiment shifts incredibly. The important part to me here is that gold was already signaling something was up in 2019. Yields were signaling something in 2019. When we had that run in equities in, in Q4 on, on the heels of the Fed's repo intervention and balance sheet expansion at that time already, yields were not pl playing along at all. They were already diverting. Banks were already diverting. They were not participating. The equal weight component of the market that you know, when you take price and measure it, everything equal as opposed to market cap base, which most indices are measured at, they were all lagging. There was already a divergence building. So something was already, obviously we got that big crash in, in, in February, March, and that was kind of just playing out the, the, the consequence. And then of course the Fed stopped and, and ended that. But these big macro events, they were leading up to this time before COVID could have even been predicted. So something is happening structurally. And it basically points to that the world is, as we know it can't really grow on its own. And I think part of the problem here is that the Fed, as much as they are beat up on the Fed enough, let, let me give them the benefit of the doubt and just say, look, they're trying their best. Let's, let's just presume that for a moment. They're seeing themselves as saving the economy. And, and if that means blowing a gigantic asset bubble, I guess that's the deal with the devil they've made in their minds to, you know, basically the rationale is, well, you know, if, if we let these companies die, then jobs will disappear and people will be even poorer. So what if billionaires get even richer on, on that front? The problem I see with all this is that it all lends or leads to a path of ever higher indebtedness. It leads to a path. I mean, we're going to be at 150% market cap to GDP, excuse me, market cap debt to GDP next year. We're going to have a $30 trillion debt load in the United States next year. The CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, had always had these kind of upward projections to take place over the next 10 years. Well, they're happening now. Yeah, everything is fast forwarded. And so my, my structural concern is simply to say, well, corporate debt to GDP is going to be you know, 100%. U.S. debt to GDP is going to be 150%. We're going to come out of this with the most indebted economy we've ever had. And that, to me, structurally, is just not a good place for growth. Now, what you see in asset prices is your classic, there is no alternative. 
you know, 60% of all global debt is trading below 1% or a lot of 16 trillion is in negative yielding debt. All this money is trying to find a way to, to get returns. And so a lot of that, you see that in, in asset price allocations, you know, small caps are trading over 110 forward PE. When do you think the shoe finally drops and the music stops playing in equities? That's the unknowable, right? I mean, we have, keep in mind, we have, besides the Fed and of course, fiscal stimulus, we have a lot of efforts to try to keep asset prices from dropping. We also have the administration, U.S. administration obviously is key to show high level of asset prices into the election. To me, it really comes down a matter of control when something breaks. Clearly at this stage where we're talking here in, in August with another stimulus package hanging just around the corner, uh, bulls in terms of the asset allocation game remain completely uncontrolled. And we may even make new highs. I, I you know, we're, we're close to all time highs. We already have new all time highs in the OEX, the S and P 100. I mean, how unfathomable is that, right? We have in 2019, we had zero earnings growth in the S and P yet stocks rallied 30%. This year we have negative earnings growth and the market is already green on the year. So all of this is pointing to massive, massive multiple expansion. So you, you're making, investors are making a bet that all this multiple expansion that we're seeing, which is historic at this point, will somehow sort itself with growth coming into the future. Well, I'm sorry, where's that growth supposed to come from? We were on the lowest growth expansion regime ever. This was the slowest growth recovery ever. And it was entirely financed with debt. And now we're adding just an ungodly sum amount of debt just this year, right? We're looking at a $4 trillion deficit just this year, and it's, it's going to continue next year. So in terms of the breaking point, I think that's, that's the unknowable. We will know when price confirms a break, you know, and that that's when you have the reversion from my perspective, the risk now is technical because we see so many stocks and especially in tech are so vastly extended above you know, they're just even basic moving averages, if, if you will, never mind them, the valuation equation or the market cap expansion, you, you're basically pricing in that nothing can go wrong because of liquidity support. Yeah. Well, when you have an environment where, I mean, governments are debasing their currencies and real interest rates are approaching all time lows, where do you go then? Where do we allocate capital to? Well, you have two, you have basically three choices, right? I mean, if, if you've been long, you can stay long and, and know where you want to uh, keep your stops. So, you know, when you know, stay long until you're wrong, I suppose, right? And see how this bubble, as I, as I see it, is going to play out. From my perspective, obviously, I'm, you know, you can chase bubbles as long as you want, but when they turn, they can fall apart rather quickly. So you, you got to have a strategy for that if that's, the game you're playing. Fading it is incredibly difficult. If you're thinking about shorting, you got to have some very specific levels that you want to look at, areas of confluence that you think are technically of interest. Or of course you 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 play in other asset classes, you know, that that have not that are maybe not as much directly impacted by that. I mean Crypto, of course, is interesting as well, right? Because that, that to me is, is completely outside of what we see in the, in the general spectrum. I just recently put out an article, I think this week or last week about Bitcoin, because it just had a, it had a nice break, a technical break above a consolidation pattern. But what I've seen with Bitcoin, for example, is I've so far, you know, 
a lot of people have been saying, well, it's, it's a hedge against what's happening on the monetary side. If you look at the price action, it's actually kind of been playing kind of the same directional game as, as everything else, right? It dropped early in the year during the crash, and then it's rallied since as well. So it hasn't really shown that disconnect yet, or that, that hedge character of it at this point yet. So from our perspective, you know, we're, we're technical and we, we try to obviously navigate long short as, as we see the, the technicals. From my perspective, all this here now with this final stimulus package coming, I think markets will probably get challenged here in, in short order. It doesn't mean they can't make new highs first, but re- reversion risk to some, some levels I think is, is building here, especially with, with tech being that far extended vis-a-vis where it's it should be standing so we'll, we'll see it's gonna i think this fall is gonna be very interesting i was reading um earlier this morning I, I forget who said it but basically some wall street guy um let me see if i can pull it up uh, david katz matrix asset advisors he's the chief investment officer there he said investors paying 70 times earnings for big tech will lead to and I, I don't know why I just think this quote is funny. Something not good, which kind of speaks to, you know, this whole unknown element that you're talking about. You know, you look at this environment and you can see like something's not right. When it will end and when that shoe will drop is the, is the big question mark that remains. I guess shifting gears a little bit, though, when you think about the upcoming stimulus that's being considered and just the the mounting debt, I mean, $7 trillion, it's a number that is really hard to wrap your mind around. What does that mean then maybe for the dollar? I don't know if this is something that you think about, um, but uh, or if you play currencies, but does this raise in your view concerns about the longevity of the US dollar as this reserve currency? And there's other things playing, playing into that, uh, not just mounting debt, but also geopolitical risk and other risks. But is that something that's on your radar? Actually, written about the dollar last week uh, at, into the end of July, because the dollar obviously has been dropping quite significantly over the last few months. In fact, you know, it seems to it seems to me everybody's playing currency destruction uh, on their relative sides of the pond. And looking at the dollar in a, in a technical sense, it just really hit a key trend line that goes back to 2011. So I think we're kind of a really important spot in the dollar. And from my perspective, if the dollar takes off suddenly for whatever event, you know, currencies can move for whatever reasons, right? I mean, it could be a, it could be a safety trade. It could be an, you know, oversold event. It could be, you know, too many people short the dollar. There's a number of different things that can happen. To me, it's kind of a critical time for the dollar. Either it's going to rally in August, September, or it's not. But if it does, then obviously it could imply risk off for equities as well. In terms of if I look at what's happening with, with the euro and, and the UK, I mean, the, the pound has been rallying quite strongly, which is interesting. I mean, UK rates are negative, and obviously they continue to print. The ECB continues to print, and, and the euro is bounced. So um, it's it's not clear to me that um, printing alone is is the, the ultimate driver of, of currency movement, although you can argue that the Fed obviously has been doing more than anyone else on the entire planet. And that has probably led to quite a bit of the reason for the weakness that we see in the dollar currently. But, you know, are they going to run out of things to buy? That's that's a question to, to ask as well. You know, their balance sheet hasn't really expanded much in the last 
few weeks, it's the treasury buying that that continues and that continues to to bother me. I mean, here we are, the Fed's buying bonds in Apple. Why? How is that helping jobs? Right? I mean, this is the most successful company on the planet at the moment, which probably brings us to the subject of wealth inequality and so forth. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow The Block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. I feel like we're picking on the Fed a bit and Jay Powell. He's kind of in a, you know, damned if he does, damned if he doesn't situation. And so I guess if you look at the Fed's current involvement in the economy, what would you do differently? That's a fair, fair question. I think, you know, here's, here's the problem. And that's, I alluded to this earlier. They've got themselves trapped. They've um, realized years ago, or at least they've, developed this habit of not willing to take or risking to take any pain. I, th- I think the the interlinkage between the monetary side was supposed to be the lender of last resort. It's morphed into this permanent intervention because of the, the very disconnect that I've been addressing earlier. And we saw this in December 2018 when markets dropped hard, consumer confidence just dropped with it and retail spending dropped with it while 50 percent of americans may not own any stocks the sheer psychology of headlines in terms of how markets are performing are impacting consumer spending uh, that's you can say who's leading who here but you know the fed may argue well we're intervening because the economy is in trouble well the economy maybe you know you can't have it both ways you can't say the markets are not the economy and 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 the economy is not the markets but they're reacting to it every single time markets reacting to something going on they intervene and all of a sudden confidence rises again because asset prices are rising again and so i think jay powell himself when he first came on board i thought he actually might be doing the right thing i mean i was encouraged yeah i'm gonna raise rates and because that's you know we're in, in 10 years into a recovery and we're going to reduce the balance sheet and i said that's great finally you know after bernanke and yellen someone that actually does something uh, about this and then of course he caved immediately you know that 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 was the capitulation i think he tried he failed and now he's he's all in you know, obviously, and I'm not going to blame the Fed for intervening during this historic crisis. I, I totally get it. I would be doing the same thing. My my worry is here is, is multifold. One is they're, A, they're overdoing it. I mean, these, these numbers they've thrown at this 
are unfathomable uh, in, in terms of size. If they couldn't extract themselves from a $4.5 trillion balance sheet, they're not going to be able to extract themselves from a $10 trillion sheet, balance sheet or wherever they, they're intending to go. Um, the, the second aspect is here that the sheer reality of wealth inequality, I think it's damaging society in general because we, we have seen this over the last 10 years. You know, whether you like it or not, the reality is stock equity prices are owned by a very small percentage of the population. You know, 50% don't own stocks and the top 1% own probably around 30% of all equity and top 5% own probably 80%. I mean, it, it's that thinly distributed. And, and so when, when someone, you know, when, the, when central banks keep intervening and they keep raising asset prices ever higher and more disconnected from the economy, the very few people benefit. And so now into 2020, we've seen this to an ever more extreme. 53 million people have filed for unemployment and they're struggling and they're dependent on government handouts. While you see the billionaires, I wouldn't say, you know, openly laughing, but they, they must be laughing on some level. You know, Jeff Bezos, I don't know what he's heading towards $200 billion net worth. We saw it was the three billionaires have added over $115 billion in their personal wealth in terms of their obviously paper money, if you want to call it, but that's what's happening. You know, the, the very few are just making out like bandits in this type of environment. And let's be clear. If the Fed wasn't intervening to the extent that they are, asset prices wouldn't be anywhere near here. So they, they are themselves creating this, this or I, I'm not saying I'm blaming them for the wealth gap in terms of what's happening structurally, but they're blowing the door wide open. They're exacerbating precisely what's going on here. So that's that's the issue. And you see that I'm probably the only person to raise this issue, but I think this translates into also political discourse. We see a more anger in the population uh, politically. You know, in the last few years, it's gotten ever more extreme. And when people are discontent and they, they feel like they're left behind or they're struggling, they become vulnerable to, to political extremism. And we, we do see that on, on both sides. You know, and I don't want to I don't want to play a political balancing game here, but you know, let's, let's face it. Our politics have degraded greatly over the last 30 years to the point that, you know, you can't get any structural solutions implemented. You know, and you can argue, well, social media technology, all these things contribute to that. And that's a fair argument to make. I'm just saying that if you have a large swath of the population that have no prospects, very little income, they're struggling. They're going to be very susceptible to all this. And so the Fed keeps claiming they don't contribute to wealth and quality. BS, sorry to say. It's absolutely not true. And I think if they were to admit it, then they would also have to contend with the problem. And obviously, they don't, they don't want to do that. They want to say apolitical. But I think what they're doing is, is adding to that. And then thirdly, to, to finish that point off, how we're going to solve all this debt issue? And, you know, the, the Fed... And there was an article come out the last couple of days. They, they talked about how they want to increase their inflation target, let inflation run hot. Well, how is that going to help anybody? Well, first of all, let's be clear, the Fed has not been able to reach its inflation target in over 10 years. It was always 2% or it never got there. And now they want to set the conditions in place where we're going to go to 2%, 3%, 4%. 
how is that helping the average person? You know, when, when your purchasing power goes down and you actually see real inflation in terms of products and services that people are to, to consume. I get the argument about how you want to pay off the debt that way, or at least be able to manage it. But I, I, I think that's, that's playing with fire. So I, I don't see, I don't see any solutions from the fed that don't bring structural issues with them. And from what I see, all they do is print at the end of the day and hope for the, for the best. And, and yeah, I'll, I'll finish that point off with one final comment. And that is you see it in, in the shifting of narratives, Jay Powell and also Janet Yellen, both in the last year or two, you can, you can look it up. They both went publicly saying the amount of debt is not sustainable. They, they went to Congress and says, yeah, this deficit spending that we had in place already prior to the crisis was not sustainable. Remember, we got the tax cuts in 2017. They were leading us on the path to a trillion dollar deficit already for this year. And now we are in this massive crisis with a $4 trillion deficit, and we will have trillion dollar deficits for, for years and years and years to come. And all of a sudden, we're hearing from Jay Powell and Janet Yellen, eh, don't worry about it. There's just basically intellectual dishonesty going sure. on here. And so, again, I, I keep coming back to this point. So next year, we're going to be in an economy looking at 150% debt to GDP. And how is that leading to structural growth? Yeah, I think at the heart of your argument is this idea of being trapped, right? You, you've said it a few times over, over the course of the show. $7 trillion is a big number. But is there anything, I want to stay on this thread of the Fed for a second. Is there any outcome in which maybe we could manage it, right? Cases continue to go down. We've noticed, you know, jobless claims continue at a steady clip to go down. If we have some semblance of a normal reopening where we're being safe, but also allowing folks to get back to work, and then maybe we raise taxes or something, is there any chemistry that could result in us being able to manage this debt if things, things referring to the COVID crisis, improve at a faster clip maybe than we anticipated? Well, let's go with the most optimistic case and let's say, let's, let's hope we get a vaccine. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sick of all what's going on here and I, I live in the UK and I have to wear a mask every time I go into a store. I'm starting to have nightmares about, you know, people with masks everywhere. Yeah, it's really, it's really grim here in New York too. I mean, I was walking down the street to the office and first off, there's so much more graffiti than I remember from four months ago, I think probably as a result of the riots, which goes to your point about just political and social tension really reaching uh, a fever pitch. And that and the mask, and it was cloudy out, so it like kind of had a London-y feel today. I think we all want it to be over. But but yeah, to your point, let's say the vaccine comes in in the next few months. Yeah, let's, let's hope it's effective. I mean, look, we're, we're all dealing with a situation that we've never dealt with before. You know, we've, we've all been spoiled. Let's let's face it. We all grew up in, in an environment of continuous technological progress, which has been great. Uh, for example, we can talk to each other <laughs> doing this medium. We couldn't do that 20 years ago, right? Yeah. So this is this is all fantastic. There's all these, I mean, I'm, I'm, I love technology. I think that, you know, I couldn't do without. I mean, that's been great progress, bottom line. But 
as a result, we also have become spoiled. You know, we, we unlike generations previously, they, they had to deal with far worse disasters than we think we had to have to deal with, right? I mean, everything has been kind of surgical over the last few decades. You know, there's been no major wars. Of course, we, you know, we had this terrible 9-11 event. Then we had these events in, you know, Afghanistan and in Iraq, but they're always far and remote unless you're there, obviously. Um, it's it's all kind of, you know, headline background. I hate to say it. There's nothing that's been earth shattering in terms of societal impact. This year for the first time has been different, you know, because it, it impacted all of us. We all had to adjust. It's a pathogen that we don't know. It's it's new. It's aggressive. It, you know, it kills people, obviously, and, and worse, it, you know, it, well, not worse, but it obviously also has side effects. For, for other people when, when they get it. And, you know, the, the world has in the past has done dealt with diseases poorly because we didn't have the medical advances uh, that we, we have now. So hopefully now we get a vaccine quicker than ever before because there's so much focus and technology and effort on it. That, that would be great. You know, but as also, as I, as I keep saying, you know, humanity as a species has kind of become arrogant, right? We were kind of at 150 million population, 50 to 150 million population for thousands of years. And then we exploded in the last 250 years, right? From 1800, we had about a billion people. Now we're running towards 8 billion people. We're kind of becoming the unintended or largest food source on the on the planet. We don't know what a virus is going to do and how it mutates. I, I can't say not to get gloomy on this, all I'm saying is we kind of need to keep an open mind that, you know, while we want to wish things to get better immediately, it may also not be that way. You know, we just don't know. So, the, you know, I think from everything that I've read so far and, and seen, I think the, the medical community is preparing itself for a longer term battle. This will not magically disappear. Rather, it's proven itself to be rather persistent so far. Um, but moving away from that briefly, you know, you mentioned the job numbers or the claims numbers coming down. This is obviously what we would expect, right? We had this initial shock and now we had the reopenings. The thing that's a structural issue that has been kind of a concern to me for a while, I was frankly surprised that unemployment stayed as long, as low and long as it did down at the three and a half percent. If you look at cycles, generally what happens is, you know, you have a recession and employment spikes, then we come out of the recession, employment comes down and at some point it levels off and then the next recession happens. That's, that's the way the world has worked for centuries, right? And in, into last year, unemployment just stayed really, really low, but wage growth wasn't really there, right? So this was this kind of conflux. So maybe you, you can argue it's, it has to deal with also accounting, right? Because labor force participation has never recovered uh, since the great financial crisis. I was in the, like in the 60s. So this is where the demographic picture comes in as well. So my question was always, okay, at some point when, you know, you get toward a recession, whether you know, obviously COVID was the trigger here, but it would be any trigger anyway, because recessions always happen. At what point will companies take advantage of all the fabulous technology that's out there and say to themselves, "Why, well, right, we're going to do what we usually do, which is we're going to right size, we're going to streamline, we're going to become more efficient. And this is a double edged sword here, because I can make two cases here and they have to balance each other out somehow. And the first part of the case is what we're seeing already. Companies are laying off and job losses are becoming permanent. 
And in fact, that's what you actually kind of see now with this ADP report uh, yesterday. And that's what you actually saw also today in, in this claims report. Companies are making job losses permanent. So the, the notion that we're going to go back from you know, 11% unemployment where we are now to back to 3.5%, even with the viruses going away, I think is a fantasy. It's just not going to happen. We're going to have higher unemployment for years to come. And these companies, and this is the second part of it, you can make the case, well, these companies are going to be a lot more efficient as a result of that. And so that brings about operating efficiencies and margin efficiencies, and that's good for earnings in, in that sense. But then you have to balance this out. You're now looking at a economy with consumers not willing to spend as much, right? Because they obviously they're unemployed, and so they're, they're ever more dependent on, on unemployment benefits. And, in, and to shift jobs in this economy is, is a very difficult task for a lot of people. They can't flip their experience level on on a dime. You know, you got to be creative, you got to be you know, energetic, and you got to be you know smart in how you reposition yourself for a new way of um, uh, employment. So I think that that to me is, is kind of the, the key question going into 2021, 2022, how the structural employment issue plays out vis-a-vis margin efficiencies of, of companies. And I think that's, that's going to be quite the journey for the Fed as well, you know, trying to save the economy. By letting an asset, by creating and letting an asset bubble run hot, uh, they're risking damage to the economy. It's all fun and giggles when when the asset bubble runs, but it's it's going to be hurting the economy if an asset bubble busts. It does every single time, uh, and I, I I think that maybe they are not even aware of this, or they're not thinking about this properly. What if you what if you have a Nasdaq like crash from from two thousand that took two and a half years to filter through? You know, we, are they setting the conditions in place where the economy is going to be damaged more long term? If an asset, if and when an asset bubble pops, and, and and so when you talk about, for example, now stimulus, you know, I I've raised this issue yesterday, and then I, I saw uh, Steve Leisman raise it today as well, on 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 Twitter. Why don't we have a stimulus package now already? Well, it's because maybe there is a a level of complacency that has set in. Why would we worry about anything? Because hey, stock markets are at all time highs. Keep in mind, obviously, the folks sitting in Congress, they're all, you know, usually big stockholders as well. And they're feeling probably more comfortable than than they probably should. You know, if you had a quick 10, 15 percent drop in markets, I think we'd have a stimulus package in the, in the New York minute. But this is this is, you know, not to wander off here, but this is kind of the other structural criticism I have of the Fed by bailing out at every step of the way, it incentivizes politicians to do exactly nothing. Why do I have to do anything? The Fed's always there. It's always going to bail us out. So the pain is always masked in, in that sense. And so that's kind of, you can argue, it's kind of what's happening now. Now, I, I have to presume they're going to come up with a stimulus package simply for one reason. There's an election in less than three months and everybody's on the on the hook and no one wants to get yeah. blamed for not you know, agreeing that's to good. That's a really good point. You know, That's a really good point. If this was not an election year, then maybe things would be would be different. So I, I have got, to assume they're going to the agree. Fire, to they've got the fire under their fannies. Oh, absolutely. Um, I want to go back to the inequality conversation. This is something that 
you're pretty well known for talking about, but I want to take issue with one thing you said and uh, not really debate, but I, I just think maybe it's like one aspect that, that may not make sense. Right. So you were talking about the disparities in the stock market, right? Some of these gains or most of these gains, I mean, it's a fact that they're getting kicked up to the Bezos's of the world, but there's also like at the same time, this new, you know, retail momentum that we're seeing, you know, firms like Fidelity adding, you know, 340,000 new accounts in January and February, Charles Schwab, uh, which recently launched this thing called stock slices so that you can buy, uh, I don't know what the minimum is, but let's say like $5 worth of Tesla, $3 worth of Amazon. And they've added 60,000 accounts for that since they turned on. So with, with the sort of explosion, if you will, of retail trading and, and fractionalized trading. I mean, maybe the inequality has existed recently, but it could get better in terms of the democratization of the stock market, given that you don't need to unload a thousand bucks to get in on, well, Tesla's beyond a thousand bucks now, but you get, you get the point. No, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree. I, what I would say, obviously, you know, we saw that last year, right? Brokerage fees were taken down to zero blah, blah, blah. You know, if, if, if you're thinking of, okay, we have an unemployed nation and they all can trade, good luck, right? I mean, to, to my, everybody's a genius during, during the bubble. And, and for me, the big element that was missing actually in the, in the February kind of blow off top was the you know, retail participation was still relatively minor. That just came after the crash. Right. I mean, now we have the chases in Tesla and Kodak. I mean, that's a classic example, right? I mean, obviously this time around retail investors, you know, sitting on the trading apps can actually coordinate, I would presume, pretty well, chasing a particular stock, you know, message board or what have you. But it shows you what we see in the price action, obviously, there is it shows you how it actually kind of supports my early argument, which is saying everything is getting disconnected. Everything is getting vertical. It has no sense in terms of an economic or earnings or what have you backdrop with just momentum chases. That works until it doesn't, right? I mean, that's that's the danger. And so when, when you want to say, okay, well, all these people are making money from that, wait until they start losing. I mean, look, look at Kodak, right? I mean, jumped up to 60 and, and then now it's completely tanked again. You know, who got hurt by that? You know, yeah, they're I, they're buying the wrong slices, maybe. Well, I mean, you know, I I you know I obviously am a proponent of trading. That's that's what we do. Um, but I also don't want to see people blow themselves up, which you know, as you know, that that can happen as well. So it's it's all fun and giggles, and and obviously if, if prices or entry barriers are really low, and and people can start playing on the side, so to speak. But then, is it is it really trading, investing, or is it gambling? Right. That's 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 the question. It's always the danger of the the get rich quick scheme that gets people in, into trouble. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's something that we've been focusing on here at the block because that's what a lot of these crypto exchange platforms look like are kind of glorified or gamified um, versions of what exists in equities. But it's really many of them look like just entertainment you know, platforms. And, and, and um, let me throw this out Be because of all the things I said earlier in terms of permanent Fed interventions, we now have a entire new generation of traders, investors, whatever you want to call them that have never experienced the bear market ever. <laughs> They've never experienced anything that well, lasts longer than three. 
<laughs> yeah, but then it was over, right? <laughs> Nothing sticks. And so everybody's now trained, myself included, right? Everybody's trained to just not expect anything bad to last because we have, you know, a wonderful fed fairies, you know, preventing any damage from happening. That's not how kind of the world has worked for the last 500,000 years, right? Sometimes things bad things happen, right? And that's that's to me is, is the fantasy that we keep playing this game of 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 debt and intervention thinking that it's all consequence free. And so in my from my perspective we're kind of in the stage of this final experiment. From my perspective, the monetary experiment of the last 11 years has failed because they could not, they, they promised they would extract themselves and it's now proven that they can't, right? And in general, I would just simply say an economy that is ever more managed by a central planning committee is not the best solution for structural growth in the long term. It does a great job of masking the pain, apparently does a great job of producing asset bubbles, but where's the evidence of structural growth, organic growth? I've said on Twitter a few times, there's no bull market without central bank intervention. I've yet to see in the last few years any market that can grow to new highs on its own without intervention uh, of the artificial sort, either be it fiscal or, or monetary. And I think that is, we should all ask ourselves why that is. Why, why are markets so dependent on this? And I think that's, that's where you get to the root cause, uh, the discussion, the 3Ds that I mentioned earlier, debt deflation and, and technology is the deflationary force. There's big issues here. And my, my worry in general is because the Fed keeps bailing everybody out, no one's focused on structural solutions. And I, I get why, because I think at this stage in the game, we're so far disconnected, so far down the, the rabbit yeah. hole that it would involve so much pain and no one's willing to take the pain. So we, we keep on this trajectory. Uh, well, when we, had, when we had Raul on the show, he had the phrase to describe this as, you know, the Fed papering up the cracks, which I think a lot of people would describe what's been going on as such. I want to close things out. We've been talking about the Fed a little bit, but I want to jump back to wealth inequality. This is maybe falling under the demographic umbrella of issues that, that you sort of see out in the market and beyond. How can we maybe remedy wealth inequality to the extent that we can? Like what, what are some things that, you know, I know you're not necessarily a policy guy, but what would need to be done in order to maybe quell the effects of that on the, on the market? Yeah, I think that's, that's I think it's a very, good question to ask and uh, i'll be first to admit that you know while it's easy for me to criticize it i think it's it's very difficult to come up with solutions i think part of the reasons we don't see any solutions is because maybe there aren't any that are acceptable to to the current political structure if you will i mean first of all you know, everybody and it's been going on for decades talks about oh the secret is education that's true but what has happened exactly on, on, on that front? You know, and, and you know, the, the, the issue is that, you know, we have so many people that are dependent on minimum wage jobs that have absolutely no upside, upside in, in or upside stake in their jobs, right? Their jobs growth has, has lagged. And part of it, of course, you know, we had this technology revolution that allowed for outsourcing of jobs. Uh, in, into various countries, and they these countries benefited from from that as well. I, I think where 
while technology is so fantastic, it's also leading us to a world where the reality is a lot fewer jobs or are needed to get things done. I mean, look at the most valuable companies in the world right now. The revenue per per job is enormous, right? In in tech, I mean, Facebook doesn't need that many people, or Google, hmm. uh, or what have you. I mean, the the the, the scale to be able to, to accomplish things globally with relatively small footprint in terms of people is, is enormous. And I think that's that's been part of the challenge in terms of the, the deflationary aspect of technology. So that you see a lot of politi political debates now heading towards either MMT or universal basic income or both. And I think that level of debate is a reflection of the fact that maybe there are no solutions because that's you come to the realization, oh my God, these people will just never have an ability to partake in the, the economy. From my personal perspective, I can only speak about my microcosm here, is to say, well, anyone, and I, I know that's not in everybody's blood, but from my perspective, it's entrepreneurship. You know, if, if, if you, be, you know, I've been in the corporate world, and I know what it's like and this, that, and the other, and you inside certain structures, but even if, if you're in a line job, you just got to recognize that you, know, you have limited income potential. You, know, you may have good benefits as long as the company is doing well, and you may have job security as long as the company is doing well. If you really want to get yourself out of the, the fixed income mode, which is basically what most jobs are, you got to get out of the shell and, and find different ways to do that. And that's where technology is fantastic, right? Because now more than ever, there's there's ways how individuals can pursue a different path. They can create their own opportunities in, in the online world. But, you know, in terms of government saying, well, we're going to solve this, I just don't see the political will there. I don't see the political cohesion there, considering they can't even agree where the sun rises in the morning or sets at night, I don't think people can afford to wait for, for government to come up with, with solutions. Now, if to the extent that they would be able to say, well, we're going to bring back jobs from overseas, we're going to incentivize companies to relocate factories here, for example, I, I think that's, that's probably all in the right direction. But then you have to recognize that also your prices on products will likely go up to some extent, right? Because the, the world has taken advantage of cheap labor overseas for years so that becomes kind of an inflationary aspect too i would think yeah well this has been a really interesting conversation very different as i was telling andreas before we turned on the mics from our our, our episode with uh tom lee um there's there are so many views of where this market's going and and that's what makes my job so much fun to sort of <laughs> sift through everything and check out what everybody what everybody's thinking so uh to that extent uh sven thank you so much for coming on the show we hope to talk to you again soon and honestly follow up on some of these threads i mean we could probably have a whole conversation on the demographic aspect of what you're concerned about you know whether it's declining birth rates or tensions among different demographic groups there's a lot to unpack here so we appreciate your time and talk to you soon it's been a pleasure thanks guys yeah thank you so much 
I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.